Let's pray and ask God's blessing in our time together. Our Father, we are uh, always grateful to gather together to open your word and to um, see the treasures that you have uh, woven through that book. Open our hearts, Father, with understanding and with appreciation, with belief, and with obedience and trust. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's cold out there. I can't remember now what we was there, maybe 40 or something when we came in. You know, we're hearing about the northeast is going to have tons and tons of snow. That's to be expected this time of year. Sometimes people think about uh, Israel and think it is always 120 degrees, dry. Uh, that's not the case, especially like Jerusalem, you know, is in the, in the mountains. Uh, this is, I want to show you a little quick video clip from... Um, um, Israel from Jerusalem from the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. So that's this is the wall that's uh, right next to the Temple Mount, and above it is the Temple Mount. And so this is the port built by Her, um, Herod um, and kind of the last remnant of the Herodian Temple area. So here is some snow. Look at that. That's real snow in Jerusalem. So. Um, in case you had any doubt, there you have documented evidence snow falling in Jerusalem. And I saw some other pictures of other parts, like up in the north in Galilee, snow on the ground. It doesn't stay real long, but it gets cold and, and all that sort of thing. So now that was your Bible geography lesson for the evening. Tonight we're considering Psalm 19. I thought it'd be interesting to do a little wordle for us, a word cloud. And so I uh, put Psalm 19 into a word cloud generator. And what it does is it takes the words. The more often they appear, the bigger the word. The less often they appear, the lesser the word. Just looking at that, what jumps out at you on Psalm 19? Any words uh, jump out at you or maybe surprise you because they're missing? Come on, observers. What do you notice? There's some, some things that are... Rather, maybe expectedly obvious, anything you notice? Lord, thank you very much. And it's all capitals, which tells you, that's his divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it. Um, that's so, I like the fact that this word cloud put it front and center. That's apparently, I don't have the word count in front of me, probably the most common word, most frequent word in the psalm. Um. What other words strike you as interesting as we think about what's Psalm 19 about? God's word? Okay. okay. Actually, uh, my title for the sermon I stole from uh, Mr. Spurgeon. And if he wants to call me and complain, I'd be happy to receive his phone call and talk it over with him. <laughs> Uh, God's two great books, and this is a classic, uh, you know, he borrowed it, I'm sure. This is a this thing that's been noticed for generations. Two books God has, creation and the scripture. Um, and so both books are talked about in Psalm 19. And so looking at that, uh, you, you notice some things. Uh, but some of the words that, again, just really are somewhat noteworthy, um, you know, speech, and it's about God's word. Words, 
But some words that are especially significant in our response. Servant, heart um, are, are important words. Lots of words for God's Bible. We see, for example, one thing that just jumps out at me there is commandment, uh, the speech, of course. Notice, the, if, uh, if you look over here, God. Compare that to Lord. If I recall, the word God is one time in Psalm 19. We'll see how often we see the word Lord. So those are just some things to help you notice uh, some themes Okay, well, having said that, let's move on. So here's an outline that you'll see uh, Sunday morning as well. God's two great books, Psalm 19. The first book, the book of creation, or some will say the book of nature. Um, gener- we call that general revelation. Uh, that's given to all mankind to see. The book of scripture Uh, is special revelation. So, I mean, it's the books available to everybody, but this is God's special and specific revelation. And then verses 12 to 14, we see God's revelation at work in the heart. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis was a a very helpful apologist. Not always the greatest. I wouldn't always agree with him theologically on points, but he he, he he was a professor of English literature, at Oxford. And so I take this as an interesting comment. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now this is an Oxford professor who's given himself to the study of literature and poetry, and he thinks Psalm 19 is one of the greatest poems in the world. That's rather striking. I would not consider myself anywhere near enough of a student of poetry to make such a statement. When he does, that's significant. Most readers will remember its structure, six verses about nature, five about the law, and four, personal prayer. So um, that's an interesting thought from Mr. Lewis. Well, let's start looking at our text, and we'll, we'll do it a few verses at a time, or break it up into those sections. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So you see him talking about nature here. Um, Anything jump out at you just as you look at that? Quick, Quick observations of any interest? Okay, this is, um, oh, it's not, it doesn't say it here. Um, the Hebrews always starts in verse 1 with a saying who it's by. It's from the, this is from David. And if I remember correctly, he says it is to the, um, for the choir master. Pardon me? Chief musician. To the chief musician. Um, and so it's meant for public singing by David. Remember David, you know, he wrote the shepherd's psalm. I'm not sure when he read it, but I'm sure many of the thoughts came from when he was out 
as a shepherd in the field and watching his sheep and thinking about all of that? Well, again, as a shepherd, uh, watching his sheep night and day, I wonder how you know, he had a chance to just look around and marvel at God's creation. David had a heart for the Lord. And, and so um, as he just even observed, you know, he observed the sheep and thought about God and his relationship to man, as he looked at maybe the stars, again, no, none of the light pollution that we have, uh, and just looking up in that beautiful, beautiful sky, uh, all that he saw, whether it be the storms that might blow through, and he, he could observe and, and see the hand of God. <clears throat> so probably one of the more famous verses is the very beginning. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Barb, do you like that picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is uh, one of Kendall's shots from a recent, his recent National Park journeys. Um, but you know, there again, you, didn't, you can just look at that and say, isn't God's creation amazing? You know, whether it be the, the rock, the beautiful scenes behind, the sky up there, the, the sun hiding behind the clouds. And... Um, and, and David says, you know, the, the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And so he sees the heavens and he marvels at, at who God is. One of the early commentators, I think on Psalm 9, maybe, well, aside from, well, there were some Jewish commentaries, but one of the early commentaries is uh, written by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. And it's talking about, you know, in verse 16 of chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Uh, for the, verse 17 and all, the wrath of God is revealed on those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth, what do you mean? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has shown us about, about himself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's kind of a, kind of a, uh, makes you think, doesn't it? We can see the invisible because of creation. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. So no one can say, how would I know that God exists? Open your eyes. It's, it's clearly seen. And so if you, if you can see creation and deny the existence of God, you have a, a heart problem, not an eye problem. Because it's clearly seen. And so Psalm 19, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, let's look a little bit more closely. Day-to-day utter speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Um, by the way, notice verse 3. Where their voice is not heard. The where, what do you notice about where? It's in italics, which means what? It's not in the original. The translators threw it in to make it clear. I think it, they uncleared it. It's kind of like many of our sermons. <laughs> supposed to be clarifying scripture sometimes we confuse it 
So the way I read it is day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Do you, know what, do you see what David's doing with us here? Day unto day utters speech. There is no speech nor language. Is that a Bible contradiction? That's the kind of thing. See right there, it contradicts itself. What's David saying? What, what? There is no speech nor language, but he says every day creation utters speech. Okay. It doesn't have language, but just by virtue of being there the way it is, it, it demonstrates his glory. Okay. Good. Other thoughts? Watch that. Every time you move your hand, I'm, I'm ready to call on you. <laughs> uh, so, so what he says is it, it's preaching a sermon without words in a sense. So he's saying... Day into day utters speech, but without words. And so that's the thing. So, so there is a message clear in creation, but it's, not, it's this, this first great book, it's the wordless book. Okay, So it's, it's a book without words, but the message is perfectly clear. It just looked like looking at a, a, a picture book. A lot of times you can have fun with a child and just show them the picture book and, and they can look at the pictures and either tell you the story or make up a story. But here he's saying God's creation, his first great book, is a picture book that is just as clear as if someone said it to you. So that's why he says it utters speech, but there is no speech or language. There, no voice is heard. And so it's, it's an unspoken speech. It's an unwritten book. Okay, so that's what we're saying there. Um, when it talks about their words to the end of the world, they're not really there, right? The speech. So this is, this is using figurative language, right? In terms of describing their speech, but it's not really speech. So David's um, helping us think about, this is a picture of meditation. Boy, it's like, this, like the creation is create, preaching a message without using words. You could just see and use reason. And you start seeing, as, as Paul said, you see God's existence. You see something of his character. You see his, his power and his wisdom. Uh, sometimes you can see maybe some interesting old tools or something. And, and you see how they work together and you think, wow, whoever did this is a genius. Well, God's creation is just an, an, a picture of his brilliance. Okay. Any other questions or comments on that? Sir. It's kind of saying if there were words, this is what they'd be saying. Yes. Yes. If there were words, it's there for you. Uh, but it's showing you God's glory. Again, some people look into the heavens and say, 
there is no God. I've mentioned before, you know, the story was, you know, in the early days, in the 60s, there was a race between the Russians and the Americans. You know, who would be first in space? Who would be first in the moon? You know, the Russians just really deflated the Americans with Sputnik. Oh, see, we're out there ahead of them. And so Kennedy came back and said, we're going to be the first ones on the moon. But, you know, remember when the cosmonaut got up there and he took a man flight around the space, he said, and, you know, communists were, are, were dedicated atheists. And he said, I went into the, to space. I looked around. I didn't see God up there. And so someone said, yeah, but if he had taken off his space suit and t- stepped outside, he would have. <laughs> but, you know, the, the hard-hearted, you have to be choosing to be blind to not see God. The, the reality of God from his, his handiwork. And again, um, you know, some of the stories, you know, examples of that, if you, if you discover a, a finely crafted uh, wristwatch, uh, you don't think, wow, this is amazing. I wonder how long it took for this to fall to, you know, to, to evolve. No, your first thought is, you know, you look on the back, boy, this is a, this is a Peakwood workmanship. I wonder who made this. Again, I, I mentioned to you, we sometimes like to watch these, uh, um, antique road shows. You know, one of the things they always want to figure out is who made this thing? Who did this thing? And sometimes that's the whole thing. Their person will say, look over on the bottom of this. Uh, it, you can tell what they're impressed with it. They call it a vase. Okay, he found a good one. But he'll see, you see that print? This thing's 800 years old, and I can tell you where and when it was made. You know, they, 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 I have yet to see them say, you know, I think this piece of pottery just kind of oozed out of a clay pit. Someone made it, but the question is, who made it? And they can say, I can tell by the skill, I can tell by this. Well, we should be able to look and say, this is design. This is artistry. You you can find, for example, quotes by even Albert Einstein saying, there's no way you can look at this and say there is no God. Okay. So verses 4 to five in them so we're back verse a, a in part their line has gone out through all the earth their words to the end of the world and them he has set you know so in throughout the world and them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race so what's he talking about here is he's talking about creation Okay, so, so he says, let's just take evidence number one. Let's just think about the sun. And he says, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. What do you think that means? And he's pretty excited and, and happy. He's happy and excited. Back then he would have been you know, dressed up in his finest duds. That's not what they called him in Hebrew. But in other words, uh, and, and by the way, notice he mentions the bridegroom. Um, you know, he was actually got more attention than the bride. Things have been flipped a little bit lately. But so here he comes out. He's west. He's, he's wearing his, his finest. And so he looks in his, in his glory, and, and it's a joyful thing. And he says, or he's like a strong man running a race. He's like an athlete. So the sun is, is a picture of glory, and it's a picture of strength. And so he, he compares it to the sun, you know, going around the earth like an athlete, uh, out on a run. And so how the sun tends to just kind of 
run around the globe, and it's, and it's a remarkable thing to see. So what he's saying is when you see the sun up there, it's, 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 beautiful, it's beautiful, it's glorious. Now, you can't sit there and stare at it, but what a remarkable thing. thing. And especially it's beautiful and glorious sunrise and sunset or you know, maybe through the clouds, and yet powerful. You know, he's, you know, he's been out in the wilderness. He's seen it fry the grass and, and, uh, and such. So he's, he said, you want a picture of God's strength? Look at the sun. He said it's rising from, is from one end of the heaven. It's circuit to the other end. There's nothing hidden from its heat. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's shade trees and all that. But where the sun goes, its heat goes. Um, so just a reminder, just the marvel of God's creation just in the, the cycle of the sun. I think that's... Some of you don't see this very often. Now, I think it must have marveled David how predictable. What's that other thing that's coming up there in the background? Do you see? So there's a moonrise too, but, but that's the thing. He used to, be, he used to marvel at how, how predictable it is, how regular it is, and, and how everywhere it goes, there, you know, it's there. And so that was just an amazing thing. And so David had the chance just to, to watch the skies. And, and we understand so much more, um, but... <laughs> But I think a lot of times these people probably knew their skies better than we do. He talked about the sun. The sun's an amazing thing. 93 million miles away. It takes eight minutes for the sun's heat to come to us. Can you see the sun on this picture? Do you see the earth? It's there. Can you see that little, little dot? See if I can do this. You see it in there? Does that give you a sense of how small the earth is compared to the sun? It takes, like I said, eight minutes for its, its light to reach us. And depending on how fair-skinned you are, it takes you in maybe 30 minutes to an hour I wouldn't go much more than an hour and a half before your skin starts to change color and little blisters can start showing up. It's, isn't that amazing? But people actually can get blistered from the light given off 93 million miles away. That tells me the sun is hot. I always think, when I think of that, I think of one of my classmates in high school. One day I saw him and he looked kind of different. And this side of his face was just a big, swollen, red look. And this was perfectly pale and normal. He'd fallen asleep outside in the sun. 
And one side got roasted. But, but it's just the, the power of the sun uh, is, is astonishing. God made that. And of course, we know this is not the greatest, the biggest star. Uh, there's loads and loads of them. But, but David said, look at that display of God's um, power and his wisdom. Look how he's he set everything up. You know, if it were much closer, it'd probably burn the earth. If it's too far away, we'd probably freeze. Its regular cycle means the whole world gets the benefit. It's amazing how God designed things. So, you know, you can study science and it leads you to worship when you see God's wisdom and his power. Let's go to book two. God's revealed book. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Let's begin by asking the question, as you look over that section, how is the Bible, what, what labels, what names is the Bible given? Law of the Lord? Testimony? Testimony. Statutes. Commandment. 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 Judgment. Judgment. So, six different uh, labels in this short section. Law, testimony, statutes, commandment. It's called the fear of the Lord. That's an interesting one. That's where it's kind of, that's a figure of speech where the thing is, repl- is described by the effect it, it, it causes. So it's the fear of the Lord in that it's the book that causes the fear of the Lord and judgments of the Lord. What names of God are given in this section? Lord, what else? Uh, hold on. Yeah, just Lord. It's pr- so that just, uh, again, the name God refers to God. It speaks, it's, it's a generic term. It can be applied to many gods, but it has the idea of power. Power, you know, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. So he's a God of power who can create. Lord emphasizes his covenant-keeping faithfulness. And so the one who reveals himself in his word, Lord, is the name he chooses. Okay, looking at that section of scripture, I'll go back for a moment. What adjectives describe the Bible? There's a grammar test for you. So what adjectives do you see there? Perfect. Sure. Right. Pure. Clean, true, true and righteous. 
So notice how he, he just keeps, this is a way of meditating. He's thinking of the different words to describe God's word. He, and if you want a bunch of them, you know, you'll see that Psalm 119. You know, uh, he, 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 then he talks about um, different things that describe God's word. Perfect, sure, right, rejoicing. I mean, pure, clean, true, and righteous. So again, looking back at the section, what does the Bible do? What, what verbs does he ascribe to the Bible? Converting. Converting the soul. Making wise. What else? Rejoicing the heart. Enlightening the eyes. Enduring forever. Um, okay, good. Um, enlightening the eyes. Do you think that means that uh, we can see better with the Bible, or is that saying something different? That's probably spiritual, spiritual enlightening of the eyes, right? So there are some of the verbs. So now it's just walking through grammatically, nouns, adjectives, verbs, we start seeing the Bible in a multifaceted ways. That expression, converting the soul, that sounds familiar to me. Can you think where you've seen that before? Where have you, where have you seen that expression before? If I told you, David, would that help? Well, it's actually the same word in 23.3. He restores my soul. And so um, God's word turns my heart around. We'll talk some more about this on Sunday, but maybe these are some things that you can be thinking about as we get ready for that sermon. Okay, verses 9, 19, verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honeycomb, honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. How does, what does David do to express the value of God's word in his life? Okay, what does gold tell us about it? Valuable. Valuable. Yeah. If I uh, believe the guys that are always on the radio saying, gold, you need to have gold in your investments, right? It's, you know, it's even back in his day, that was, the, that was a standard of trade. It's, so it's, um, but God's word is more valuable than gold. Wow. And then back then, they didn't have candy. What did they do for sweets back in the ancient world? Honey. Honey? Can you think of what else they might have used? Dates, yeah. And I, I even have heard reference to a honey made from dates. That's a sad world to me if your greatest treat is dates. <laughs> so, but honey was sweet. And it was also um, 
Uh, it, it, was, it was invigorating. Remember Jonathan? He was kind of tired. He, he got a little honey, and that gave him strength for the battle. Even today, they'll tell you that honey has medicinal purposes. But, it, but all of that he's saying is, here he's talking about sweetness. God's word is sweeter. God's word is sweeter. I remember the story of a rabbi that would uh, take his uh, children and maybe grandchildren and he would take a bit of honey and dab it on the Bible or a book and say, here, taste. See how sweet that is? Trying to build in their mind the sweetness of learning, the sweetness of God's word. Here's a, just a slide that helps express it. What, what are those, all those... Uh, Hexagonal shapes there represent. Anyone 15 and under? What are those, uh, not quite squares, but six-sided objects represent? (laughs) Anyone know what that is? Honeycomb, right. Honeycomb. So in Psalm, I guess I got this a little goofy here. So who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret. Oh, let's see, am I doing that right? Yeah. So here's the question. What fruits, I guess I maybe do have that right. What is the fruit of God's word? Okay, I'm sorry for, I didn't mean that to show up then. I don't know if you can read that. What is the fruit of God's word? So we've seen the names for God's word. We've seen the adjectives that describe God's word. We've seen what God's word does. What effect does it have in lives? Uh, we see, and now think about that as we look at verses 12 to 14. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from, the presumpt- from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So what is it, God's word? It's sweet, it's powerful. What what can it do in life? It, well, can it, what, what does he mean? It, who can understand his errors? What do you think he's getting at there? Yes. It lets us know um, that there is sin without God's instruction. You wouldn't understand what sin is. There you go. It's, it's, I mean, the Bible helps us recognize what sin is. Um, I don't know if understand there could also suggest... Uh, and where it came from and where it leads, you know. But, but it really helps me understand sin. <gasps> Modern people don't like that word. But the Bible, that's a good thing. Because it shows you what is destructive in your life. And then cleanse me from secret faults. And so it can lead us to prayer. Lord, you've shown me my sin. Cleanse me. Um, so reading God's word, part of that is now starts praying. Keep me away from sin. It shows me my sin. Cleanse me. It prays, protect me from sin. Let sin not have dominion over me. 
I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Okay, last verse, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So tell me how that's, that, that last uh, verse, what is, that, what is he saying and how does that strike you? Okay, we should be evaluating our speech and what we think about all the time. We want it to be pleasing to the Lord. Good. What else? Yes, yes sir. Things suggest purity there. Those are the things that are valuable to the Lord. So he wants pure words out of his mouth and a pure pureness from his heart. Hmm. Yeah, purity. Of speech and of thought. And God's cleansing word gives that desire. Are you say that? Only because we have been redeemed and now have his strength can we be anything that's acceptable to the Lord. Yeah. And, and God's word is central to, to that, you know, knowing God and having regeneration so that we can actually do something with his word and obey it. Good. Yes. Uh, back in verse 11, uh, God's word is a warning. And he says, and then keeping them is great reward. And then he comes into this passage right here, wanting to be right before God. And apparently he took the warning seriously. Mm. Yeah. Again, it's a, it's a sign of uh, folly to not pay attention to warnings. And um, God, but God's word warns and gives us, and if we had to approach it rightly, it gives us a hunger to have our life please him. It's interesting, he began by saying, creation speaks but has no words. He closes by saying, Lord, may my speech and my wordless meditations uh, be pleasing to you. So he begins, but if, if you think about it, this whole thing has been a meditation and his prayer is that his meditations would please the Lord. And I think the Lord was pleased with this meditation. So as we begin the new year and are thinking about reading our Bibles and just the value of gathering for God's word, I think the Psalms a long time, well, a long time favorite. Again, as C.S. Lewis says, it's one of the best in the book of Psalms and maybe just one of the best poems, lyric poems, period. Any other thoughts from this psalm? Sir. It just reminds me of another verse in scripture in Job 23, where he says that it's more than my necessary food. More than my necessary food, yeah. Remember Jesus? What, uh, the, what, is, I, what is my food? The, to do the will of God? So in a similar way, to, uh, this is better than food. Yeah. We just studied this when way and <coughs> our twelve faithful women and um, though she could have been um, tortured and um, persecuted for having her Bible, she wouldn't let it go. 
unless she absolutely had to. So um, she ran the risk of being captured because she had her Bible, but um, that was her philosophy all the time, that her Bible was the most important thing to her in her whole life since she was six years old until mm. she died. Uh, Wen Wei, the, the lady they, the ladies studied last, um, so treasured God's word, even though in times of persecution uh, put her in great danger to have the Bible, still she treasured it. Or I think of Corey Ten Boom, what it meant to them to have a Bible there in the camps. The men, on the other hand, uh, we, we, one of the things we read about in a, our chapter was a woman standing before a fire and ripping out portions of the Bible and, and joyfully burning them because you know, there's lots of commandments in there that she didn't think should govern her life. What a sad tragedy to take that approach to God's word, when especially to me, the heroes of the faith uh, that put their life on the line to have the Bible or to make the Bible available. And, Dave, and, and, and Job saying, it's, it's better than food. Um, it's my great treasure, David says. That's the spirit of someone who knows the Lord. Good. All right. Well, let me pray, and then we'll go to praying for one another. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Help us through the psalm to uh, appreciate it more, understand it better, treasure it. Father, I pray for uh, many in the family of God who, who do not yet really grasp how treasure, what a treasure your word is. Help your children grow in this. Father, we pray for our brethren in parts of the world who do not have the freedoms that we have to have access to teaching, to have access to your word. Lord, we pray your, your blessing and equipping of them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.